0: Also, who's cheater, Neil or Sarah? I think I'm the Jimmy Key.
1: No. Jimmy Key? <laughs>
0: You're the cheater.
1: Hey there, welcome to Hot Take Down, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 29th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 5:38. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil.
2: Hey, Sarah. How's New York?
1: (laughs) It's hot. Is it hot in Pennsylvania, too?
2: Oh, yeah. No, it's it's hot anywhere. I'm curious as to uh, the temperature where Jeff is right now.
1: (laughs) Jeff, is it hot in California? No, it's always
0: the same weather here.
1: That voice is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. How's it going?
0: Hi, how are you? I'm getting ready for um, a little 9 a.m. England, Germany.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: It's really fun when you have such a huge time difference from wherever the sport is being played, which would definitely apply at West Coast watching European soccer. Like, <laughs> I when I believe, I only think I've only been out here for one or two British Opens, but I actually think if I stay up late enough on Wednesday night, I can watch the British Open, like, as I'm going to bed at, like, one thirty in the morning. But yeah. anyway...
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just getting you ready for the Olympics and uh, stuff to be in the but middle wait, of the night.
0: what's the deal? Do we know – is that going to all be ta- – I can't stand tape delay. Are we doing tape delay? I mean, just
1: stream it. Just stream it and then you won't have to. Uh, speaking of the Olympics though, you guys. So we know now almost all of Team USA um, after the gymnastics and track trials wrapped up on Sunday – Two world records fell in the track trials. Sydney McLaughlin became the first woman to run under 52 seconds in the 400-meter hurdles, which is amazing. While Ryan Krauser broke the shot put mark by a quarter of a meter, so seems like Team USA is gonna be uh, gonna be pretty good. Pretty excited about that. Oh, there's one other like pretty amazing thing from the track trials. Javon Harrison won both the high jump and the long jump, and he'll be the first man to represent the U.S. in both events since Jim Thorpe did it in 19- 1912.
2: Wow. <laughs> How cool. cool is that? He jumps high and he jumps long. They seem like totally different sports.
0: I mean, you look at, like, the builds of the guys who play those sports. There's, it's, like, different kind of thing.
1: Yeah, like, it doesn't really make any sense anymore. I mean... does he, Does
2: he do the triple jump?
1: That's a good question. I don't believe he's, I don't, I don't know.
2: Also, what is the triple jump? (laughs) So also, (laughs) why do we do the triple jump?
1: Uh, Why do we do anything really? (laughs) I (laughs) mean, you can say, why
0: do we do anything for the Olympics? But some sports more so than
2: others, (laughs) like triple jump,
0: steeplechase. There's a couple things in track
2: and field where you're like, uh, what? Well, I just want to see if he gets confused and does the Fosbury flop during the long jump. <laughs> that would not go well.
1: No, that's, that's the wrong way to approach the long the long jump. I,
2: Maybe I,
0: there is room for innovation, though. <laughs> Maybe there is a new way to do the long jump that that he will come up with
1: by Maybe. doing some
0: sort of flip or something.
1: <laughs> well, stay tuned for all that innovation. Three weeks and from it's, Friday when the Olympics this starts. This is just a
0: taste of some of this hard-hitting Olympic yeah, analysis you're going to be getting hashtag analysis
1: here for the Olympics, yeah. On today's show, we'll talk about how baseball is dealing with its rule regulating sticky substances and how baseball is dealing with pitchers complaining about the rule. Then we'll talk about whether the NBA Conference Finals, including a set of three small market teams, is, in fact, Adam Silver's worst nightmare. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Major League Baseball has begun enforcing its prohibition on pitchers using foreign substances to help them grip the ball better, and there have been some definite results. The Seattle Mariners' Hector Santiago was ejected from a game against the White Sox on Sunday after umpires checked his glove and found a sticky substance. Santiago and the Mariners claimed it was rosin that mixed with Santiago's sweat. Somehow the game between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Washington Nationals was even more disruptive, with Phillies manager Joe Girardi asking the umpire to check Mike Scherzer for foreign substances three times over the course of the game. A's pitcher Sergio Romo got so fed up with being checked for sticky stuff that he dropped his pants in a game against the Giants. This is now a sentence that we can say about a major American sport. On ESPN's Baseball Tonight, Kim <laughs> Whoops. On ESPN's Baseball Tonight, Tim Kirkton summarized how the league's performance over the weekend is being perceived. <laughs>
3: It was an embarrassing night for baseball, a bad look for the
2: game. But the following day, baseball commissioner Rob Manfred said the process, quote, had gone very well.
1: So how would we rate the process of these foreign substance searches overall? Jeff, is this a bad look for baseball or must we agree that Rob Manfred, that it's all going well? I think
0: it, um, like most things, baseball um, does. It was ham-fisted and ill-conceived. <laughs> I do think it is having a positive effect on the game itself. And I know we're going to get into that, and Neil's going to sort of break it down a little bit more. But, you know, we, we did have a podcast uh, a few weeks ago about the, <laughs> the lack of hitting. And, you know, after we were like a month or so in the season. And, and it did seem like it was out of control. And it does feel like there's more of a balance now. Um, I I don't know whether you can like chalk that up to all the chalk, chalk that up in its entirety to the sticky substance thing, but I think it's definitely a factor. I think the warm weather is a factor too, but it does seem like it's a better product. So overall I would give them kind of mixed grades. I I think the biggest fault, uh, here is just rolling it down in the middle of the season. I I sort of side with the pitchers on this one. I don't think that was totally fair. I think there are guys just from reading who who do use um, the, the sunblock and the pine tar rather than something like the spider tack. And I think those the previous two ones, while I guess not technically legal, was kind of a little bit more of a gray area. You know, it was kind of more of like an alternative to rosin, which is allowed. And I do think now that they're kind of doing this hard ban, I think some of these players, these pitchers who often do complain about the ball being too slick and hard to grip are really struggling. And I think you're actually, you know, while we've gotten a lot of attention to the guys struggling, you know, the elite pitchers who are struggling and spin rates are way down, I think there's a lot of pitchers on the sort of fringe of baseball who were kind of hanging on to a rotation spot who are now getting creamed, um, at least in the last couple of weeks. And I don't know, you know... It's a hard stance to say, saying like, these guys deserved more warning before they put started enforcing this rule, so they could have adjusted their cheating regimen. But in some ways, I do think the middle of the season is a little unfair, especially when you have these kind of unenforced rules. And baseball has tons of unenforced rules, and then to all of a sudden enforce one in a much more strict fashion. That could have been handled better. But then again, baseball did give pitchers fair warning, and it it seemed like they needed to step in. So sloppy in execution, but I think ultimately probably good for the game.
2: I agree with that. And also, just like you were going to have a clown show like the Joe Girardi, Max Scherzer thing. Like that was going to happen, I think, no matter what uh and and no matter how you did it you know i think that that got a lot of the attention as being sort of like oh this is just another one of mlb's Pat- rob manfred's patented disasters but yeah i think you're right jeff that the the getting this out of the game was necessary you just take exception to perhaps when and how they handled the the switch over to a spider free world
1: yeah i guess like to it, it it's it's an interesting argument to me for the pitchers to say, well, I mean, like, you know, Tyler Glasnow saying, you know, I got hurt because I had to stop cheating in, you know, in the <laughs> middle of the season, which is like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> Just
0: for the record, even Tyler Glasnow, if you look at the full quote, was like, and now I know that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right after You something. guys aren't going to print <laughs> this, right?
1: Yeah, right. This is off the record. Um, no, but I mean, it is like... I do. I have some sympathy. I don't have a lot of sympathy. Like this is we. It's not like nobody was talking about pitchers using stuff. People had been talking about it. There had been like, you know, vague threats about it, and it. It was. It was like this. I mean, I think wasn't the headline earlier this season, like, the the secret everyone's talking about in baseball is all the sticky substances. Like, if you didn't know something, a crackdown was coming, I feel like you weren't paying attention. You didn't want a crackdown to come until you just kept going. But it's sort of akin, I think, to me to, like, Like, should the Astros have said, oh, sorry, you told us mid-season we couldn't use uh, (laughs) elaborate cheating schemes involving uh, trash cans. Uh, That shouldn't count. Sorry. Like, what? (laughs) Like, you were cheating.
2: We've been using trash cans for the last three years. How am I supposed to adjust to this now?
1: Exactly. You're (laughs) asking me to totally
2: change to a non-trash can-based hitting system.
1: Someone's going to get hurt if I have to actually swing without knowing whether it's a strike (laughs) It's a grayer i mean I't uh,
0: th- 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 that's the problem is that I feel like there's degrees of this there's a player you know who really legitimately has trouble gripping the ball, you know that saying the ball's too slick and and you know maybe there is something you know I know they rub those balls in what mud or something like that, but maybe they do need to do something, find a middle ground to help these I don't know why i've I've just become on the side of the cheating period. I'm like, I'm like, I like
1: it. Garrett I like Cole's
0: it. agent all of a sudden. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, My client, but, uh, Garrett Cole. But, but, <laughs> but You know what I mean? It's like the ones who cheat, the most egregious cheaters in some ways are having a detrimental effect on the, they kind of, for a, the fringe case cheaters. <laughs>
1: It, yeah, but I if think they that's can't grip the true. ball, they
0: can't grip the ball, then that's a problem for the pitchers. But we'll see. But you know, one thing they kept saying, which was always funny to me, was that you, you bet you can't outlaw that, or we're going to start hitting hitting batters with uh, pitches because we can't grip the ball. And, right. and the hit by pitch rate actually, I think someone did the analysis, hasn't changed at all. Right. Um, but if I was a pitcher, ah, I might start throwing a few Just more slipping. at the players, be like, oops. Yeah. Can't grip. <laughs> can't Maybe grip this anymore. me
1: again. Oops, hit I, another guy. The, the problem is if it was all Astros that they were hitting, people would just be like, oh, that's all Oh, fine. this actually, is confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I do want to say, though, like, oh, you know, this argument that, well, like, well, now I can't grip a baseball. Guys, I can't ever grip a baseball. That's why I'm not a major league pitcher. Are you yeah. telling me the reason you are a pitcher in the major leagues is because you had some elaborate spider-man <laughs> him, uh, on the ball this whole time and that's what made you a pitcher like i feel like i should have tried that you know i mean what the heck in again
0: in the pitcher's defense because clearly that's my role on this part <laughs> they are they're constantly changing the baseball mlb is guilty of this too we know this so so who knows maybe they are you know i don't know what they're doing to baseballs this is you know all kept secret in central yeah. america where they make <laughs> these balls and ship them up and who knows what they're doing
2: (laughs) and the other way that i'm kind of sympathetic is just that you know these pitchers sort of they had to engage in some sort of this it seems like now with the spin rate revolution kind of exploding just to stay major league pitchers uh in some ways so it's sort of like you've turned a blind eye to this for years. You've set up a system where the pitchers that are getting paid and in some ways the pitchers that get to stay in the majors as pitchers are the ones that are using sticky substances and so guys tailor their games to it. Like Garrett Richards said that he spent the last nine and a half years you know, kind of pitching a certain way and now he feels like he needs to uh, totally overhaul the way that he pitches because of this absence of uh, sticky substances. And I think uh, you're right about degrees, Jeff, is because they, they just went for basically everything outside of the rosin bag uh, and, and didn't want to put that onus on the umpires in real time to be able to make the differentiation between, okay, well, this is spider tack That's not okay, but this is sunscreen and rosin, so that is that is okay. And I totally understood why they did that, but it is definitely like it applies a black and white uh, standard to something that maybe there is a little gray area in between spider tack and sunscreen and rosin.
1: But is there I mean sunscreen wasn't allowed either. They just ignored it. Yeah, but it was it, right?
0: it was it wasn't it was like a blind eye was, was put on that and and Do you want those heart. players
2: to get skin cancer? I mean <laughs> come on. <laughs>
0: I mean they put the rosin bag and that's what Hector Santiago said. He said it was rosin. So now what happens? Do we know? Did they send it to a lab? They
1: did. They put it in like a plastic bag like oh, it was my like goodness. crime scene evidence I berries right but like very poorly like handled like it was just like a dude put it in a bag like this the the the, ch- the chain of evidence here is all messed up you know who knows what will actually happen
0: i will say the way they are i don't think this will keep up i do think you know in many ways this is kind of like the 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 drug or bomb dogs at the airport or 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 the <laughs> the the uh, highway patrolmen on the you know side of the road you know looking for speeders like i do think it's enough of a deterrent now that i don't think any player is going to be brazen enough to try even if they aren't checking every single pitcher which they obviously cannot continue at this rate to do it check as much as as much as they are
2: Well, and because of the threat of that, we have already seen an effect in terms of the league-wide spin rate where, you know, for the season, 2021 is still the highest spin rate on record since StatCast uh, began tracking this stuff uh, in 2015. But if you break it out between games before that Monday that uh, they started enforcing it, and I think you could even go back a little bit further than that because they had been talking about it um, uh, and the threat of it, but basically games before that uh, are the highest on Record by far, and games since then, the spin rate has dropped down to uh, roughly the same as it was in 2016, which was the second lowest spin rate uh, league-wide for a season since 2015. It's not at 2015 levels yet, but it has dropped below 2016 levels. So even the threat of of this coming into action over the course of just a few weeks, we've seen the the trend of ever higher spin rates, and I think uh, MLB had gone like some ridiculous number of like months in a row with a league-wide increase in spin rate and then in June it actually we saw a decrease for the first time in a long time. So we are seeing some some pretty substantial effects from it pretty quickly.
0: And on an individual level, you just look at how I don't think it's a coincidence that Trevor Bauer, Garrett Cole, Oh uh, no, not at all. Corbin Corbin Burns, there's there's a bunch of, of, of sort of marquee pitchers who you know, not just getting hit harder, but also sort of, you know, with, with the case of Bauer, how it's affecting his his control and look at his walk rates way up. And it's definitely having an impact. It is interesting that some of these guys are throwing just as hard. We're just not seeing, you know, I guess whatever it is on the forcing fastball, that extra rise um, that leads to more missed bats, it seems to, you know, at least in these the two kind of poster childs of, of this, um, it, it's definitely affecting them. But I'll be interested to see, you know, if someone like Cole and someone like Bauer um, rebound and adjust. or or And when I say adjust, I mean, find a new place to hide spider tech.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, or you wonder if pitchers will, you know, will find some other non-illegal like way to gain an edge. And I think, they probably will, right? I mean, there are all kinds of things, you know, pitchers develop different pitches. you know the pitch, the pitch um creation right now is such that like there there are still really interesting and cool new things happening in pitching. And it kind of it makes me sad that maybe the actually just the only like positive development for pitchers over the few years was really just using sticky stuff really that's what this was all about it wasn't about developing a better pitch it wasn't that it was just i don't know we're i think as we have more time this summer and you know we look at spin rates more and this the threat of of getting suspended looms over pitchers it'll be interesting to see the actual effect on on hitting whether hitting actually is down or is up over the summer with spin rates down. You know, we don't know that perfectly. I think that would be the easy narrative for the league. And and that's something we'll want to look into when we have more data, but it is sort of wild. All of the things that baseball has done to contort itself, to like try to make it a more appealing product when all it had to do maybe was just enforce its rule. Like, we were going to move the mound. We, you know, all of the rules about when you can bring in pitchers and all of this stuff, and all they had to do was say, hey, maybe don't, don't cheat. Really? That's no. it.
2: <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know about the unintended consequences of this as well. I think we'll find out about those and whether they actually, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a straight through line to the goals that MLB is sort of hoping to achieve from this, because even over that same span where the spin rate has dropped, Yes, hitting has gone up a little bit. The league-wide WOBA is 314 since then instead of 311. But, and strikeouts are down. But walks actually went up uh, more, you know, fractions of a percentage point walk rate went up than strikeout rate went down. And I think one of the goals was to reduce three true outcome baseball. Yeah. Well, you've just added, you've swapped one true outcome for another true outcome. Uh, Maybe it's one that's more conducive for scoring, but it is interesting to think about, like, I wouldn't be surprised if, even if hit by pitch didn't go up substantially, walk rate probably will. You know, guys will struggle more with command of pitches but like do they want like the goal is for more balls to be put in play not for you to trade strikeouts for walks
1: yeah how do you fix that though i mean if you're the if you're the league office and you insist on you know manipulating what happens i mean hitters are smarter and are more patient at the plate like what do you how are you gonna (laughs) no i demand you swing I think
0: it's an interesting point, you know, you're swapping strikeouts for walks, but I, I, I think it's, it proves the point that this is the way the game is going to be played. I think there's a certain amount of that that's inevitable, regardless of who has the advantage at the moment, whether it's the hitters or the pitchers.
1: You know, it's funny, my my pro-cheating self is really up against my don't-mess-with-the-parameters-of-the-game self and i like if the cheating is going to force the mound getting moved that that just that's that's not okay then the cheating needs to come down that's the one thing that will make me anti-cheating that you've gone too far yeah all right well we'll see how all of this plays out over the summer we can leave this discussion here for now let's take a break and then we'll be back to talk about the nba The NBA playoffs continue to be a lot of fun, you guys. In the East, the Bucks took Game 3 in Atlanta, thanks to Chris Middleton's 38-point effort on Sunday night. Milwaukee now leads that series 2-1. to Meanwhile, in the West, Paul George proved his Playoff P moniker on Monday night with 41 points in the Clippers' 14-point win over the Suns. Phoenix still leads LA 3-2, to so Chris Paul is still just one game away from going to the NBA Finals for the first time ever. I have found these games wildly entertaining, but there's another conversation going on in sports media and especially on Twitter about how good or bad these conference finals are for the NBA, how they've affected the ratings. Whether small market teams like Atlanta and Phoenix and Milwaukee and the the Clippers side of L.A., I guess, are as exciting as watching LeBron or Steph or Kevin Durant. On Crooked Media's Take Line show, Jason Concepcion talked about where those questions fit in in a larger context of how we're thinking about
3: sports. Sports in general, the three major sports, football, MLB, NBA, yeah. basketball. Um, have b- been in this weird, COVID aside, in this weird like crisis era, right? With the NFL, it's concussions and uh, their players uh, engaging sometimes in, in criminal and or problematic activities and the response of, the, of their teams to those players. And of course, diversity at the highest levels of the league. And then you have LMB, the aging, uh, aging fan base games can take five and a half, six hours sometimes. Uh, Is there a way to speed it up? What do we do? How do we match our game to the changing tastes of a a younger demographic? Um, And then NBA, we have, Uh, TV ratings are going down. How do we change that? What do we do as we transition into an era in which we can envision LeBron moving from the stage? Uh, Are big markets too dominant? Like all of these conversations have uh, have engendered a kind of atmosphere of of constant crisis. So here's my question. Do we think the atmosphere of constant
1: crisis is real or a Twitter phenomenon or both? Are the are the concerns about declining NBA ratings and smaller market teams being crushed by the super teams really borne out by how this postseason has gone?
2: Well, certainly the idea of small market teams being crushed by super teams hasn't been borne out. Um, you know, but if you just look at who the final four are, like you mentioned, you know, this is not necessarily at all who we thought. Like maybe we would have thought the Bucks Maybe the Clippers, if if they could stay healthy, and they haven't even had a healthy Kawhi, and, and they're still sort of fighting. So, and then the Hawks and Suns forget about it. Uh, you know, going into the season. So, I think that that is not necessarily uh, you know a concern. I also do think that there is this idea of you have to have the it's not like performative crisis, right? Like, you, you know, I think in the in the media, you have to have something to talk about. And usually crisis mode is, sells and gets people engaged and gets them emotional and angry or whatever. And so I do think that there's a, uh, there, there's a distinction to be made between, yeah, maybe Adam Silver is, you know, thinking about NBA ratings all the time. Uh, but then there's also a certain amount of concern trolling by people that have a vested interest in just getting riled up about literally anything and everything. And it's impossible to tell the difference between those two things, because that's the media landscape that we live in right now. That's my deeply cynical take on all of that.
0: (laughs) I guess I'm kind of just dubious of ratings as like a sort of proxy for interest in the, the way, you know, sports are consumed. But also on top of that, I think what we've seen in the, you know, in the year of the pandemic, and I guess this sort of beginning of the sort of post pandemic era, if we can say we're in that right now, I think there's been a lot of noise and we've seen ratings like dr- drastic shifts in ratings across not only sports, but just kind of all, all things, all forms of entertainment. And to me, I wouldn't read, I, I don't know if it's a direct relation of the product itself. I think it's, it's it's in some ways a byproduct of how people are consuming television or sports and or just in general rather than you know necessarily what's happening on the court. I will say I do think the injuries to key star players in these playoffs have been significant and in many ways kind of dictated you know apologies to the teams remaining. It obviously wasn't all just a lack of bad injury luck, but to a certain a certain extent it was. I mean, you know, we've talked about how the Suns have remained the one team that really hasn't lost besides for you know losing Paul for a little bit hasn't lost a key player um, and, and that's part of the reason they're still kind of thriving so I do think that the injuries have not had a great effect on these playoffs but e- even within that I mean the games themselves in, in terms of like the general broad interest um, there's there's been stars absent and I think that's not helped but for me, I, I like it. I mean, I, I like seeing these teams that are, are more organic and, and less kind of contrived super teams that have. Um, even though you could argue the Clippers are a pretty contrived super team, um, but seeing these teams that are, are 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 getting there with players they drafted, um, whether that's Giannis or Booker or Aiton and all these guys. I mean, granted, Paul's in there too. But you know, it, 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 I like seeing new combinations of players and, and, and seeing guys sort of ascend to that superstar level. I'm all for it.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and that's to that end. On Twitter, culture critic Touré posted something about how having only one player from the list of the top 15 best-selling jerseys left in the playoffs, that was a disaster for the NBA. But, I, I, you know, I think the point about these rising stars like Trey Young and Devin Booker, doesn't it seem like... We They will have, you know, best-selling jerseys next year. That is good for the league to have yeah. new rising stars. I mean, isn't that going to keep people interested? It seems like it has so so far kept people interested.
0: Yeah, I think jersey sales is a lagging indicator. I think those, those are an indicator of who was a star two years ago in many yeah. regards. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of short-sighted. I, I do think what we're seeing with Trey Young and Devin Booker is the emergence of a new superstars, and that's good for the game. They need, to, you know, also the guys on those best selling jersey lists are old. They're all old. <laughs> so <laughs> they can't just, you know, stay there forever, you know, LeBron and Curry and all those guys. It, it, we need a new crop, and that's what's happening. The first year the Warriors won the title, those guys weren't probably on the best-selling jersey list. Clay and, and Curry and, and Draymond and all that. I mean, they were, you know, a relatively new thing. Even though they, you know, been together for a couple of years and made a couple of playoff runs. I mean, I wonder were we were. We saying these same complaints then?
2: Yeah, probably. I mean, that's what's so funny about it is that you're right. It is kind of backwards looking as much as anything. And how how do how does the next generation of best-selling jerseys sort of get made? Well, it's by doing things like we've seen out of the young players in the league in the in this final four right now, you know, it's it's how you build brand uh going forward around like a new crop of stars so yeah and i think the ture thing i mean he got ratioed uh kind of bad on that kevin durant roasted him and said imagine ture knowing what's best for professional basketball so i think he got rightly you know good and well roasted uh on twitter for that take so i don't know i i think that it's not really a crisis, and also, yeah, this gives the chance for people to kind of lord their non-casualness over people, where they're like, "I, I was in on Trey Young, you know, when he was in college. I don't know where you I guys have been." I watched him play at Oklahoma. Yeah. And right. I
1: did actually watch him play at Oklahoma.
0: Those are like those music fans that,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: stop liking the band once they start going to arenas and stadiums. And totally.
1: Stuff. I, I will say, like, as a typical small market team fan, um, this kind of conversation is so frustrating because like, so what, what people are saying essentially is that they never want these smaller teams to do well. And if, if people who have, you know, amplified voices are saying that kind of thing, it's really easy to think, yeah, the league wants the small market teams to be bad and stay bad and that's just like then what are we doing why are we even why are we even playing the season this season what are we even doing here and that's really frustrating
2: and there already was that perception i mean uh just think about when when the knicks were still a thing in the playoffs (laughs) uh at least and they're playing the hawks nate mcmillan said. (laughs) <laughs> Remember when that was a thing? Uh, Nate McMillan basically said like, "Oh, we know the Knicks are going to get all the calls because the league wants them to win," and he got fined or whatever it was for it. But I do think there already is this perception, and it is sort of an us against the world for the smaller market teams, for sure. And and maybe a sense of a chip on their shoulder. But there is the sense that the league would prefer the Lakers and would prefer. You know, there, there's a reason why, if you're conspiratorial about the league's history, which we know the NBA is the most conspiratorial of all the leagues, think about. (laughs) You know, the frozen envelope theory with Patrick Ewing and and all these things, the secret suspension, everything. You know, there's a reason why the same certain teams keep winning over and over and over and over again in NBA history and and other teams haven't broken through. And I think that this year has been totally the antidote to that. Like, this Final Four is so fresh and different from, uh, you know, the the usual list of teams that have dominated and monopolized the championship that we should be celebrating this, you know. And I don't know whether or not the league would pr- truly prefer this to instead of these four teams for the Lakers to be in there and the Knicks to be in there and so on and so forth. But I do know that as a fan who craves any kind of competitive balance, this is great.
0: Also, I I reject that they're small. I mean, first of all, to me, Atlanta is a big sports market in a, in a very good sports town with a lot of history and a lot of different sports. and, and Phoenix Well, a history is, uh, of
2: losing, uh, <laughs> you know, not winning right, the championship. Right, I can right. say that I as an Atlanta the as yeah. an <laughs> the
0: Falcons, you know, losing titles. But there's a lot of history there, you know, and I didn't say history of titles. I said history.
1: It's not good history necessarily. Fair. that's fair. Painful that's fair. And, history. And Phoenix is a huge city. I think Phoenix is the fifth biggest city in the country. It,
0: it, it yeah, small in,
2: market doesn't even mean anything anymore, I think. Yeah, our definition of small market, I think, is so amorphous and it yeah. changes like, just so based on what we need to serve any kind of argument that we're making that <laughs> it, it I think that that's sense. another part of this it's, conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think
0: the Pittsburgh Steelers, beyond besides for the Cowboys, are the most popular football team in the NFL, and Pittsburgh's a tiny
2: city. Like it, yeah. It, they it, would call it, the uh, Pirates a small market baseball team.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yet
2: yeah. also the Steelers would be a big market football team. It doesn't, it doesn't make yeah, any sense. It doesn't. Yeah.
1: I mean, you can't tell me that Atlanta and Phoenix fans are not like. All in on their teams. They're starved for a championship. They're, like, maybe what they really mean is that those teams don't have nationwide appeal. Because there are Laker fans across the country, so that's a big market. And there aren't Suns fans across the country. Right. Like, but that's how, how this how is how you, you get yes, Suns fans. Exactly. Like, why yes. are there Golden State Warriors fans walking down the streets of right. Brooklyn? Why not? Indeed,
2: beca- by the way, <laughs> why <Exactly>. indeed? <laughs> and
1: that's why. And that's why
0: there are Steeler fans across the entire country because they won a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, this 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 argument is so silly and circular. And like, they'll they'll be more f- interest in the league because someone's going to be like a huge Trey Young fan now forever. And that, you know, some kid in, you know, Boise is now a Trey Young fan. And that's good. That is good for the league. It is good to have different faces here. Um, I love LeBron, and I, you know, I'm always rooting for LeBron, but I want to see. I want to see Chris Paul make a final. I want to see Giannis getting yelled at by the Phoenix fans to shoot the ball faster. I want to see all of these storylines. They're fun and interesting and good for the league. And it's better for the league if there aren't the conspiratorial things. It's better for the league if we're not, if we don't see Lakers-Knicks, I think. I think that's good for the league right now, even though that's what that's what everyone would have thought the league would
0: have wanted to see. Well, hold on. I mean, let's... Wait, I'd like to see Knicks. I mean, that's, <laughs> well,
1: that's, that I hasn't know.
0: happened in a long time.
1: <laughs> the Knicks are approaching us being a small market team if they're not careful. They won't have it.
2: <laughs> Oh, boy. They got that small market mindset, at <laughs> least. They
1: do. They do. So let's talk about the games themselves really quickly here. So... Based on how these four teams have played so far, which finals matchups do you guys think would be the most exciting? Like, which ones are you wanting to see the most?
2: Well, anything that avoids uh, a repeat of that Suns Clippers game—not the most recent one, but the one two, uh, two, two games <laughs> ago, the, where like, literally no one could points. shoot.
1: Yeah, that was
2: literally oh. <laughs> could not make a shot. That was ugly. Maybe that lent a little credence to the theories of why you know this isn't good to have the, uh, this Final Four. But no, I I still want to see. I mean, the Bucks. I I want to see their full potential. I love Trey Young. I I obviously I used to work for the Hawks, so I am rooting for them. But I do think that, um, you know, in the finals, like whether we get the Suns or the Clippers, because the Clippers are shorthanded, we're not, you know, we don't have Kawhi there, but Paul George is really doing something remarkable, I think, in terms of elevating himself into that conversation, a guy that so many people have doubted for so long that, I don't know, I, I can't pick a favorite. I'm sort of talking myself in circles here because I do think all of these potential matchups have so many storylines that you could um, you could dig into. And that's the another one of the beauties of this Final Four is not, you know, when we had uh, LeBron versus the Warriors every year in a row, you know, you would think, this is what the NBA wants, this is, you know, a a powerhouse matchup and the biggest stars on the biggest stage. Frankly, just speaking for myself, and I don't think I'm alone in this, I got sick and tired of it by the end of it. Like, I was sick of that matchup, and I think matchups can get stale. Uh, I think that after, you know, the first year, second year even, you know, you add Kevin Durant in the mix, that was interesting. But then once you got to, like, that fourth uh, year and you're just like, Uh, Can we be done with this already? I'm sick of this storyline. So I think that um, these are new storylines that all have potential because they are new and they haven't been, you know, uh, run into the ground yet.
0: Uh, I would I want any to answer your question um, in the most half hearted way. I would (laughs) like any match. I, I would like to see the Suns over the Clippers just because of the Kawhi injury thing. And I I just don't, I I, I get tired of the injury narratives and though, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda, if only we had, you know, the full full roster, it would have been a better series narrative, even though the Clippers, that didn't stop them in the last series. But I also think the Suns are the most entertaining of the teams to watch. Um, So there's that. But I could get on board with either one of the Eastern Conference teams, just because I think they're both in their own way, you know, whether it's the Bucks after struggling in the first couple goes with this, you know, core roster um, in the playoffs now, kind of putting it together in the, in the, this time around is, is pretty entertaining. And you have Giannis, you know, one of the best players in the world there. And then I also, you know, can get on board behind the Cinderella Hawks story, who, I personally discounted each step of the way, <laughs> um, so I, I think that's fun too. I want to know where Sarah is because you've been, you know, through the course of the playoffs, relatively quiet on the the fear the deer talk. And where are you uh, emotionally on this Bucks team?
1: <laughs> and um, where does
0: it rank among, let's say, the Vikings or the Twins, or you
1: know? <laughs> My my Bucks fandom is like only through my husband, who grew up in Milwaukee. I have typically not loved Milwaukee teams. The Brewers are fine. You're gonna I, you like know. the Brewers. I've seen you get behind them. They're fine. So, but I, I really do like the Bucks. I love Giannis. You know, I've watched a lot of Bucks games, and so I feel like I I know that team pretty well. I've always really liked Drew Holiday, no matter like in his various steps. I've always really, I've always really liked him. Um, And so to see him really, like, help make this team, like, help it realize its potential. And Chris Middleton is super fun, too. They're really fun. I would love to see a Bucks-Suns final. I, I mean, I'm a huge Chris Paul fan, too. So seeing what happened with him, seeing the narrative with him, where he was sort of, you know, discarded last year. And then this, like, all the contract talk that they no one... You know, no one would take him because of his huge contract. And then finding just a perfect fit with Phoenix. The way he's made DeAndre Ayton better, his partnership with Devin Booker. I just, I think, I love, I mean, I th- think the Suns are really fun. I would love that final, the the Bucks and Suns. And I think that'd be, I think it'd be so entertaining to watch. And I think we'd get a really great champion out of it. So, so that, that's where I am. I'm pulling for the Bucks, but All of these teams are fun. I could watch all of them. All right. Well, we are getting close to our final. We'll see what happens over the next couple of days. But we should we should we should have the final starting by by next week at this time. We can leave this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories. Some don't. We end each week's show with one of those dissents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil.
2: Yeah, so the 2021 Stanley Cup Finals started last night with the Tampa Bay Lightning winning game one over the Montreal Canadiens, five goals to one. But I don't want to focus on that result as much as I want to zoom out and talk about these two teams. That have made it this far. On the one hand, there's a Lightning who took the championship last year. They have 26 more total wins than any other team in the league over the past four seasons, including the playoffs. If Tampa wins the cup again this year, they'd become only the second team this century to repeat as champs. And you can make the case they could or maybe even should be looking at even more. If not for in 2018, they lost game seven of the Eastern Conference finals to the eventual champion Washington Capitals. And then in 2019, uh, they suffered a a stunning first-round historic upset loss uh, after tying the all-time record for wins in a single regular season that's Tampa Bay. They're basically the definition of a modern NHL powerhouse. And then there's the Canadians. Before this season, Montreal had not made it out of the first round of the NHL playoffs, or if you prefer, the round of 16, since we're including 2020's weirdo format, since 2015. And they hadn't made the final since last winning the cup back in 1993. Now, this year's Canadians team is notable as a finalist for some really strange reasons, perhaps not the best reasons you want to be notable. First, they wouldn't have made the playoffs at all under normal circumstances, and it wouldn't have really been close if you sort of group teams in the divisions that they usually are in and use the usual playoff format. They would have missed the playoffs by 12 points in the standings. During the regular season this year, they won 24 games and they lost 32, but they were able to get points in 11 of those 32 losses because they happened to come in overtime or shootouts, making use of what I think I've argued before is a somewhat unfortunate loophole in the NHL standings, and they extracted more points from losses than all but two teams. And even after they upset the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Winnipeg Jets, and the Vegas Golden Knights, that was the huge upset. En route to the final, Montreal has still lost more times, considering last night's result as well. They've lost 38 times, more times than they've won, which was 36 times, over the course of the whole season. Uh, Montreal won't have a winning record on the entire season unless it wins the cup in six games or fewer, which now after losing game one will require them winning for the next five against Tampa. I guess they could also sweep from here on out and that would get them a winning record for the season. Now somehow this is not the first first time that a team has made the Stanley Cup final with a losing record over the entire season including the playoffs up to the final The Canadians are the eighth team to do that since the NHL began in 1917-18, although it's pretty rare to see, especially in modern times. So before 2021, the last team to do it was the 1991 Minnesota North Stars, who won 27 games and lost 39 with 14 ties during the regular season. But they won two series leading up to the Western Conference final, then beat the defending champion Edmonton Oilers before losing to the Pittsburgh Penguins in the Stanley Cup final. Now before that, We'd have to go back to the 1968 St. Louis Blues, who I believe we may have talked about before. But as a refresher, this was uh, a team playing in the first season after the NHL expanded to 12 teams after spending a quarter century of playing with just the original six. And the NHL thought the way to handle this format was to put all of the new teams in a division together where one of them was guaranteed to make the cup final and then serve that team up to the best team from the established division. So to get a sense of how different the two divisions were during the regular season, the Blues held their own against their fellow expansion teams. They went 22 and 18 with 10 ties. But in games against the established division, the original six, they went 5 and 13 with six ties, which ensured that their record was below 500 over the entire season, even after they made the final, at which point, naturally, they were swept by none other than the Montreal Canadiens. Now, I'm not going to go deep into the other five teams on the list, but only one of them, the 1938 Chicago Blackhawks, won the Cup after entering the final with a sub-500 record. So history doesn't say the Canadiens are especially likely to join that group, but another kind of history does, which I think is what makes this case so interesting. For our non-hockey fan listeners who might only be vaguely aware, aware of this. The Montreal Canadiens are basically the New York Yankees of hockey, like the Yankees who constantly beat you over the head with the fact that they've won 27 world championships. The Canadiens have won 24 Stanley Cups, uh, nearly double that of any other team in hockey history. So the 2021 Canadiens are simultaneously just this incredible, miraculous underdog story and also a case of the most storied franchise ever being on the verge of another title. It would be like if the Yankees somehow had a plucky group of both veterans and Precocious kids who snuck into the playoffs and pulled off a series of upsets. I don't know how to feel about that hypothetical. Would it be even possible for the Yankees to be a plucky underdog? That feels impossible. That, but that's basically what the Montreal Canadiens are right now.
1: But the the Yankees were the Yankees were a plucky underdog in 1996, right? When Jeter was a rookie. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> they had been. They yeah. had been. They had made the playoffs in '95, but then they hadn't made the playoffs before then since the '80s, since the early '80s, and they were kind of plucky. Yeah, that's just because they were poorly run. <laughs> well, that's what made it fun for everyone else. You you
2: you mean it was a bad idea to have an owner that an owner <laughs> that hired a mafia hitman to uh, stalk your highest paid player? That contributed to them losing.
1: I mean, I guess. Weird, but sure. <laughs> they also, that team, let's not forget, it wasn't
0: all the young, young. It, they had Wade Boggs. They had Tim Raines. They had like all these mercenary old. Yeah, Ruben <laughs> Sierra. They had all these like mercenary old vet free agents like they were not a plucky young team. By the way, I also don't think the comparison's quite fair because how many of these did Montreal win when there was only 6 teams in
2: a league? Not a bunch quite of them. The same. Not quite I the mean, same. I mean, that's just
0: About good the Yankees. planning.
2: Right, that's true. You got a front load for when there's an original 6. That's just yeah. smart. And also, I mean, it's not like the the uh, it's not like MLB was 30 teams when the Yankees were winning most of those titles either. But it was more than 6, right? There's more than six, for sure. There's like six good ones, though.
1: I mean,
0: Dwight Gooden
2: was on that team. <laughs> You're going back to the '96 Cecil Fielder,
0: <laughs> Daryl Strawberry. It was just a bunch of ringers. I mean, granted, they had a good young core.
2: Isn't Corey Perry the Daryl Strawberry of hockey? I mean, come on.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: like, I gotta think. I gotta process that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> People were like, did look at the Yankees as like. A more lovable team that year is is more what I'm trying to say.
2: I think that's true, and the Atlanta Braves uh, of '96 could be basically the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, if you think about defending champ team that has been sort of dominant for uh, the past you know half decade. I think that that's uh, I like that comparison, Sarah. I, I think that that's an <laughs> Thank interesting you. comparison.
1: I'm making I'm making hockey commentary, Sarah. Here. I
0: think this might be the oldest team to ever win the World Series. Just just for the record, the only player in according to Baseball Reference in their starting lineup who was younger than 25 <laughs> was Derek Jeter. In fact, only like two others were even in their 20s. They're all old.
1: I really I like that you're fixated on like team makeup here, like the team composition to compare them and not like their state in the world at the moment, which was my point.
0: I think just giving any kind of underdog narrative to the Yankees is clearly a trigger for me. I guess. As as we've all (laughs) witnessed in real time. (laughs)
2: Well, it was Um, triggering for me, too. That's why I thought it was so bizarre to think about, like, you know, you see this Canadians team doing what they've done in just these playoffs. And if you don't know the context of history, you'd be like, oh, my God, this is like such an amazing plucky underdog story. And then you remember they are the Yankees of of the (laughs) NHL.
1: Does it matter that, like, the whole Canada hasn't won a cup thing since they last won it, you know, forever ago? Like, does... Does that play into this too, do you think? Are are people
0: Well now we're gonna be like English speaking Canada
2: hasn't won a cup in right mm-hmm. thirty yeah. years.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> More I don't, than we don't want to we don't want to make that distinction. Yeah,
2: Calgary Flames, I think, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, they're certainly a fun story, uh, despite their <laughs> despite their, their many championships parallels. in the past. Right, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, though they also looked slightly outmatched last night. Thank you for that rabbit hole, Neil. Um, I need to go think about the 96 Yankees now. And that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your beat next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Mallon. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.